This podcast series is brought to you by Hyundai. Hyundai is building a better world for tomorrow by aiming to neutralize CO2 emissions at all stages of production and operation. Hyundai is working toward carbon neutrality by 2045. Learn more at HyundaiUSA.com. On July 27, 2023, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres walked up to a podium to make a dire statement. Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era of global boiling has arrived. Guterres was there to tell reporters that month was set to be the world's hottest on record. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. There was a tinge of hope in Guterres' statement, along with a call to action. It is still possible to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the very worst of climate change, but only with dramatic, immediate climate action. Here in the United States, there are three sectors that contribute far and away the most to CO2 emissions, transportation, energy, and industry. As of 2021, they represented 28%, 25%, and 23% of U.S. emissions, respectively. Three industries, three quarters of our carbon emissions as a country. And if you were to draw a Venn diagram of those three sectors, the auto industry would sit right smack dab in the middle. And experts say that's why it's critical for automotive companies to take a lead role in cutting carbon. This is Driving to Zero, the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. I'm Jake Neer with Automotive News. So I'm here in Detroit with Jamie Butters, executive editor here at Automotive News. Jamie, uh, for one thing, welcome. Uh, as a relative newbie to the auto industry myself, I'm kind of thinking of you as our wise guide along the path through the wilderness here. It's, it's a nice way to say older. <laughs> <laughs> Good experience. Lots of experience. Lots of Good experience. experience. So going forward, we're going to hear a lot of voices from the industry, environmentalists, analysts, and the like throughout this whole journey. But first, I want you to explain a little bit why this is such an important subject to be exploring, especially right now. You know, it really is is multifaceted. Of course, we see this huge investment in the industry transforming you know, the products that will be offered over the next decade or two uh, from almost entirely gasoline-powered, maybe with a little bit of electrification, to you know, really, you know, predominantly or at least half or more electrified uh, zero emission vehicles. So, you know, that's a that is a massive shift in the way people interact with cars, the way the industry behaves, and all that. But but it really goes beyond that. You know, you think about, and we're going to talk about this through the series through the course of the podcast. And you touched on it earlier, but you know, they talk about carbon emissions in scope one, scope two, scope three. A lot of it has to do with the energy you use. 
you know, just running the factories. Of course, these automakers, I mean, that's, they are makers. They manufacture very large things with thousands of parts in them. They use a lot of energy and not just human energy, but, you know, electricity, heat, you know, all those forms of power, uh, many of which emit carbon. Uh, and so that's a big part of it. And then there's how the product is used. And so for 100 years, we've mostly made gasoline-powered or diesel-powered vehicles, as you run those, you emit carbon in the air, and it's it has made a big difference over over the course of the century or so of the auto industry. And I think you make a really important point here, which is one of the reasons that we felt like this was important for us is that you know you there's no lack of content out there about electrification, about EVs and the products and the drivetrains, but this is a more holistic look, right? This is this is that, but it's also taking into account the manufacturing and the supply chains, which we will talk about, can go 10 or 20 levels deep on every single component of a car. Um, And I think that that was what makes this a little bit different, that this isn't just about EVs, this cool new product. This is really an entire industry changing every facet of what it's doing. Yeah, and it's doing so, at least in this country, without really a regulatory mandate. These companies are huge stakeholders in their local economies and in the global economy. And while, you know, China is not part of any, you know, global pact and the U.S. has been in and out of the Paris Climate Accords, uh, the companies know that their, their employees, their customers, their shareholders are all demanding some action from them. And so they're all working toward carbon neutrality, trying to sustain a comfortable life on this amazing little planet of ours. So Jamie, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, I know so far this is a sensitive subject, but you've been covering the industry (laughs) for about 25 years now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. How extraordinary is the shift to carbon reduction in terms of you know, your experience seeing the industry, how it's operated for the better part of two decades up until the last few years? Well, again, two parts. I think, you know, on the product side, and like I say, I mean, it was a little more than 25 years ago, I went to my first auto show, which was the Tokyo show in 1997. And that was when Toyota was just bringing out the Prius hybrid. And uh, I was a reporter for the Lexington Herald-Leader in Kentucky at that time where, you know, Toyota has a big factory. And, you know, I wrote about how Toyota saw these hybrids as a stepping stone to electric vehicles, which would be a stepping stone toward something called a, a fuel cell, you know, that turns hydrogen into electricity inside the car and emits only water vapor. Um, you know, pretty amazing science and technology. You know, and here we are 25 years later, we're really just... We're still less than 10% electric vehicles in the market, but it's moving fast. So there's that part. And then, but it is, again, it's what's happening at the factories. And and it's not that companies didn't pay attention to wasted energy or how they did things, but it was more about the focus on saving money, not wasting money on energy, not wasting money on parts uh, that weren't needed. And that's still important. Companies are in the business of making money, but there's also this this concern and focus on carbon, on you know playing their part in reducing the harm that the industry can do to the planet while it tries to do the good of helping people be able to get around. 
Well, speaking of the past and the realization that things had to change, I thought that before we dove into what's happening now with this transition, it's really important to understand how we got here and how the industry found itself in such a prominent position in this equation. And for that history, we turn to this guy. My name is Chris Wells. I publish under Christopher W. Wells. And I'm a professor of environmental studies at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's written three books that deal with the environmental impact of cars and related infrastructure, including 2012's Car Country and Environmental History. The first automobiles, and especially the first famous automobile, which was Ford's Model T, were really designed for a world that doesn't exist anymore in the United States. That was a world of no pavement. It, it was a world where there were plenty of roads, but, but very few of them were paved. And if they were paved, they were much more likely to be paved with brick or cobblestone or even wood rather than asphalt. And the most common surface was no surface. I mean, by, by a long stretch. Chris says this factor is actually one of the big things that made the Model T such an amazing vehicle and why it absolutely dominated the auto market in the U.S. at the time. You know, find a historian, ask them why the Model T was successful, they'll tell you, well, it was cheap. <laughs> it was mass-produced. That was only part of it. Uh, the other part of it, it was just a way better designed vehicle a better engineered vehicle than any of its competitors for use on typical, really poor quality American roads and streets. It had an amazing suspension, it was lightweight, it had ample power. Whatever the landscape had to throw at it, it could take. And so you really have to think about that early automotive period much more in terms of recreation than in terms of transportation. Cars were fun. Like they were, they were adventure machines, to use uh, Guy's mom's phrase. And they let you do stuff that you couldn't do any other way. If you lived in the city, it meant you could get out in the countryside on the weekend. It meant exploration. It meant escape. The imagery that people embraced was the imagery of the pioneer, right? The, the imagery of the frontier and getting in a car and going off the beaten track. <laughs> and most of those tracks were beaten rather than paved, right? Um, that was something you could do. And cars put that sort of experience within people's reach in a way that it hadn't been. And, and that was real, that was, that was important. In the 1920s, the outdoor recreation industry in the United States absolutely exploded. And between the two world wars, Bruce Seeley calls the golden age of American highway building, right? And so as soon as the roads got nice, the automakers were able to change the physical object that they were selling. You could enclose the vehicle and make it much more comfortable. You could create a sort of cocoon and you could heat it and you could 
Eventually, you could pipe music into it. And way down the line, you could cool it, too. <laughs> the cars got heavier, they got faster, they got really stiff suspensions, and the automakers started to design them more for performance, especially at higher speeds. Better cornering. Like all the fun stuff, right? <laughs> You can sort of see it as a big cyclical feedback loop, right? The cars get more capable and more people have them. And so more investment in the highway system, well, let's pave it because the, the ruts and holes and imperfections, let's call them, in the road were a problem. So let's smooth them out. And, oh, wait, now people are, are going too fast and hurting themselves. Okay, well, let's re-engineer the system so that it's safer. Great, now it's safer, so the car makers make bigger, faster, better, stronger, more comfortable, capable vehicles. And that's attractive, so more people buy them, which means suddenly those great roads are full of traffic, and that compromises the experience. So let's build more and better and bigger and faster highways to accommodate more bigger, faster cars on the road and and so it's a sort of a iterative feedback loop where highway design and road design get bigger and better and more and more gold-plated until you end up with the interstate system. And I assume that as we're reshaping the landscape, we're reshaping our lives, we're reshaping this technology, this all leads to sort of a ballooning effect for the environmental impact of, of cars, generally speaking. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's a numbers game as much as anything, right? So you, you do something locally that improves conditions. And so a few more people buy cars and they use the roads and then the traffic increases and then there's more demand for wider highways or faster highways or safer highways. So those get built, which makes it possible for more people, more attractive for more people to do. But then you multiply that across the entire country over time. And 10 million cars on the road is a totally different ball game from 100 million or 200 million or 300 million. So that's the story of the product itself, the car. But there's also the story of making that product in the first place. One of the sort of best ways that I know of to tell this story is to zoom in on the Ford River Rouge plant in the 1930s. Partly because Henry Ford was kind of famous for integrating his entire company <laughs> vertically which is to say he wanted to own sources of raw materials for every part of the car. And he made a big deal out of this. He made it part of the way he publicized the Ford Motor Company. That means we have all kinds of historical and archival material that shows all of the different things that went into making a Ford car at the time. It's when you start to look at the vast holdings that the Ford Motor Company had to accrue in order to make all of its cars in-house, so to speak, that you really begin to get a full appreciation for the environmental implications. Before coal went into the boilers at Rouge to do anything, right? So all of the leather in the seats, all of the iron ore 
that had to be mined, all of the coal that had to be mined in order to make all of the things, uh, vast forests in Michigan, an elaborate rubber plantation in the Amazon, right? All of these things, and that's really just scratching the surface of all of the different materials that are in a car. Like that's the bulk in, in terms of weight. But there's an environmental story about every single bit and bob that goes into every single automobile. That all has to be harvested and collected and transported to, in this case, the River Rouge factory, which itself had an enormous environmental footprint locally, right? All of the energy that it consumed to make the cars, all of the people traveling to and from the plant, all of the materials traveling to and from the plant. That environmental story is also pretty involved because the, the Rouge did a lot of stuff that was environmentally problematic. All of the emissions, all of the toxics, all of the waste, all of, right, all of that had to go somewhere. And a lot of it ended up in the soil and in the air around the factory. Other waste and toxins had to be shipped away and disposed of elsewhere. And of course, the carbon went up into the atmosphere. That's another kind of environmental story, right? And that's before you get to me buying a car and starting to use it. Um, and that, of course, also has an environmental story. Even projecting back to 1930 and Ford's River Rouge plant and thinking about what that looked like and what that meant and trying to get, a, get your arms around the environmental implications of just this one factory making this one vehicle. Really important one, huge part of the market, but only a small part in the grand scheme of things, right? The Rouge plant in 1930 couldn't be more different from the auto industry today. And so that even that life cycle approach, if, if you do it in 1910, and then again in 1920, and then in 1950, and then again today, each time you look at it, it's a new thing. And all of those really complicated relationships have grown and evolved and changed in really interesting ways. The Rouge today really looks nothing like it did in the earlier part of the century. It's really held up as an example of what you should do with a large manufacturing campus in terms of the environment. That's Michael Martinez, who covers Ford for us here at Automotive News. He tells Jamie and me that Ford made a big effort at the beginning of the 21st century to try to correct the mistakes of the past at the Rouge. Back when it first opened, Henry Ford really wanted to vertically integrate every part of the manufacturing process, the environment be damned, right? You had iron ore coming in off the freighters from the Rouge River. You had steel, you had glass, uh, all sorts of facilities, all working its way ultimately into the production of vehicles. Around the turn of the century, though, Ford really focused on reestablishing the Rouge as an environmentally friendly place. Uh, everything from the skylights in the plant to let in more natural light so you didn't have to use as much energy during the day to cleaning up a lot of the soil, uh, pollution in the soil caused from those early years with all the chemicals. There's stormwater management provisions in place today. It has a living roof 
on the top of the building. It's the most noticeable, and it's probably the biggest environmental impact there. So the Rouge today looks nothing like it did before. You mentioned that this was the turn of the century. I mean, this, in a lot of ways, this was a, a Bill Ford project, right? He was was chairman then. I think Jack Nasser was still CEO, but he was able to you know refocus the company and their efforts on uh, being better stewards of their property. I think anytime you talk about Ford Motor Company's efforts in terms of environmentalism, it starts and ends with Bill Ford. Whether it's the Rouge or anything else, the company's done. He's been an advocate for the environment since he started at the company. He always jokes that when he joined in 1979, he was told to stop associating with any or all suspected members of environmental organizations. He uh, was instrumental in helping Ford start its first uh, corporate sustainability report. They were among the, the first automakers to do that. He gave a now legendary TED Talk that's held up in Ford circles as this great visionary piece of video that where he argued against selling more and more cars when the sole purpose of his company is to sell more and more cars. I've been involved with the auto industry my entire life. And for the past 30 years, I've worked at Ford Motor Company. And for most of those years, I worried about how am I going to sell more cars and trucks? But today I worry about what if all we do is sell more cars and trucks? What happens when the number of vehicles on the road doubles? triples, or even quadruples. There were some uh, within Ford who believed that all this ecological nonsense should just disappear, and that I needed to stop hanging out with, quote, environmental wackos. I was considered a radical, and I'll never forget the day I was called in by a member of top management and told to stop associating with any known or suspected environmentalists. Of course, I had no intention of, of doing that, and I kept speaking out about the environment, and it really was the topic that we now today call sustainability. So it really does start with Bill Ford. He really took that as a challenge uh, to make the company better in terms of its environmental presence. So talk about the actual actions that Ford has taken in recent years. What is it doing to try to be a better environmental steward while also making big trucks that burn gasoline? So it can be seen really on a number of levels, whether it's at the plants, you have the Rouge, and you have what they hope to be this next generation's Rouge in Blue Oval City, a big manufacturing campus where they will be building EVs, and they're implementing a lot of the same environmental-type protections that they pioneered at the Rouge at Blue Oval City. Beyond that, Ford's really advocated for more stringent fuel economy rules. If you think back to 2020, they were one of the first automakers to back California and their suggestion for tougher fuel economy and emission standards. Back at the time when you had a presidential administration that didn't want that. So they were sort of on the wrong side of the Trump administration there. Other automakers didn't make that pledge until after the administration got a little more friendly in that regard. So Ford really focused itself and is proud to say that uh, to this day that they, they focused there. So they obviously are uh, leaning into electric vehicles and hybrids to try to clean up you know, emission standards, uh, increase their mileage, uh, things of that nature. 
But again, it's really at all levels of the company in terms of uh, decarbonization, in terms of uh, zero waste to landfill at most of its plants, and a, a lot of efforts like that. When we talked with uh, Margot Oge, who used to be at the EPA and was trying to uh, negotiate with car companies uh, on behalf of the administration at the time, she said that she saw Ford as being the the leader uh, and and the best car company to work with on these uh, issues. And that was especially true when Alan Mulally came in. What was it about that era that um, sort of set Ford uh, apart and and you know made it possible to sort of start moving the needle on these things? Yeah, I think it does come back to the leadership of Bill Ford in that chairman's role. But also, if you remember at that time when Alan Mulally was CEO, it made a whole lot of business sense for Ford to go more green, right? That was during the near bankruptcy for Ford and the bankruptcy at, at two of the three Detroit Three Automakers. And Ford received a billions of dollars from the federal government to make its operations more environmentally friendly. That's when they redid Michigan Assembly Plant to build vehicles like, you know, the Focus and the Fiesta or the C-Max, and that they really had their first big push into electrification and into hybrid vehicles, although they ultimately didn't pan out the way they wanted. In order to get the loan to save them from going into bankruptcy, they needed to promise to you know, get better in terms of greening up their fleet. So as much as you talk about how they you know, maybe wanted to do that because of Bill Ford's leadership, it also made good business sense and was the right business move for them at the time. Yeah, although those vehicles did not really uh, strike gold in the market, although they did help uh, secure the funds to stay out of bankruptcy. And I mean, Ford had already borrowed a lot of money and had themselves in pretty good shape, but uh, they were looking for money everywhere they could, including from the federal government. Exactly. Mike, talk about looking forward now. What, what's next for Ford on this uh, front, and what are their what are their goals? So yeah, Ford has big plans in terms of electrifying its fleet. They want to build 2 million EVs globally by 2026. They haven't promised to electrify everything like some other automakers are doing because they still want to give their customers a choice. They're still going to have some gas-powered products, and they're also going to have a lot of hybrids to sort of bridge that gap between the two powertrains. So they want to challenge Tesla as the number one EV maker in the U.S., as do GM and some others. But they have some pretty lofty goals for the next few years here. Mike, can you tell us just a little more about what they're doing at, at Blue Oval City? I mean, obviously, like you said, they don't have to do the same kind of remediation that Ford had to do at, at the Rouge that have been making vehicles for decades with arguably little concern for the environment. Now with a clean slate, are they are they just trying to replicate some of the things they did, like the the living roof to keep the temperatures down and all that, or or are there new things they're adding in? Well, they're replicating a lot of what they've done elsewhere. They they're also trying some new things. Uh, it's a massive massive site, and a certain portion of that site has been dedicated to being a nature preserve essentially and leaving that untouched. Although I think there's some stipulations that if they do want to expand in the future, they could use it. But for the near term, it's going to be wildland protected for the environment. Even if you look at things like moving about the plant, they want it, again, to be sort of all-inclusive. They're even going to have their own construction building, a Lowe's store on site, so the big trucks don't have to go outside of the facility and can run, you know, emit less 
bad stuff into the air so they don't have to travel as far. They have their own power plant there and they have, again, a wastewater management treatment facility to make sure that, again, nothing bad gets into the water there. So a lot of things they have done at the Rouge, a few new tactics to reduce traffic, to reduce emissions in the surrounding area, but it's really their biggest chance to have an impact because it's going to be their biggest manufacturing site in the country. Now, although executives like Bill Ford talk about their commitment to the environment, not everyone is happy with the attitude of car companies towards sustainability. When we come back, we'll hear from some critical voices who say automakers are quite literally fueling the climate crisis. That's next on Driving to Zero. Hyundai's pledge to reduce carbon emissions across its entire business goes further than just efforts to boost electrification and hydrogen technology in vehicles. By working across the entire value chain to improve manufacturing processes, transitioning factories to renewable energy, and supporting suppliers, Hyundai's goal is to be end-to-end carbon neutral, from production to operation. Because Hyundai's overall competitiveness starts with outstanding parts provided by its partners, the company is supporting suppliers in many ways to help them improve their capabilities and competitiveness and work towards carbon neutrality. Hyundai works with its supplier partners to monitor and offset emissions, use recycled and certified biomaterials, conduct life cycle assessments, and provide education and best practices. Hyundai is committed to building a better world for tomorrow and bringing its partners along for the journey. Learn more at HyundaiUSA.com. The Daily Drive podcast brings you all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. I'm Jamie Butters, executive editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. We give you all the top stories each weekday in interviews with industry leaders like this conversation with GM President Mark Royce. We can deliver anything we want, and we will. And it depends on what our customers want, and it'll only get better over time. Listen and subscribe to Daily Drive at autonews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Driving to Zero. I'm Jake Neer with Automotive News. In March, the Center for Biological Diversity and Green Latinos took out a full-page ad in the New York Times accusing automakers of fueling the climate crisis. It read, quote, We face climate breakdown while automakers leave pollution-cutting technologies on the shelf. President Biden, automakers are stalling and you need to act. You know, they're literally fueling the climate crisis by creating vehicles that are gasoline powered. And they are fueling the climate crisis by not taking substantial enough steps um, towards creating sustainable production practices. That's Andrea Marpillero Colomina, the Sustainable Communities Program Director at Green Latinos, one of those two organizations that took out the ad in the New York Times. Green Latinos is an organization that focuses on the climate and conservation priorities of Latino communities. Automakers also have a lot of power, right? They can, you know, work with, you know, utility providers with other factions of the energy industry to think together, right, to put their heads and their money and their political power together to create really meaningful change, right, in the way that cars are produced, in the way that cars are fueled, in the way that credits for um, less polluting cars are distributed. It's really in their hands to do so. And I hope that 
this ad motivates those um, automakers and the people that work with them to do more of that active work. When I ask Andrea what she makes of the billions of dollars that automakers and other auto companies are putting into carbon reduction practices, she says it's simply too little too late. I would say the future is now. Right. And, and I think that's part of the challenge is that in the conversations that I've had um, with folks that work in the industry and, and I've visited car manufacturing plants, I've spoken with auto company executives. And my concern is about the lack of urgency, right, that we don't have time. And it's great that the auto industry is figuring out how to scale up their EV production, but it needs to happen much more quickly than it's happening. And she says that urgency is especially potent for the people Green Latinos represents. Data shows us pretty much across the board that black and brown communities are disproportionately impacted by pollution and specifically by particulate matter pollution that comes from vehicles. The asthma rate for Latino children, for example, is quadruple the asthma rate for white children. In communities in California, Black and Latino folks are exposed to 40% more particulate matter than than white communities on the East Coast. That number reaches 75% more. So we're talking about really, really disproportionate harms. I also spoke with Andrea's colleague, Dan Becker. He's director of the Center for Biological Diversity's Safe Climate Transport Campaign. The Center for Biological Diversity was the other of those two organizations that took out the ad. Dan's been lobbying on climate issues for decades and directed the Sierra Club's global warming program for nearly 20 years, starting in 1989. These are companies that understand that there's a problem. They all have scientists on their staff. They all have the technology. Every one of them can make better engines, transmissions, aerodynamics. Uh, Every one of them can make hybrid and electric vehicles. But only some of them are are doing that some of the time. Uh, And we need a lot more cooperation, but also a lot more vision. And Dan says for many environmentalists like himself, there's another big problem a serious lack of trust. Well, unfortunately, I've been watching this industry for a long time, and they don't always keep their promises. Uh, And the last uh, big one that I was involved in was um, uh, working with the Obama administration to set standards. The auto companies were part of those negotiations. They negotiated the standards. They went to the event uh, in which the president signed the, the new rule. They applauded. Uh, And then as soon as President Trump was elected, on day four, they trooped into the White House and said, you know those uh, new um, cafe and emission standards that we just signed? Tear them up. Uh, This is the Pinocchio industry. They don't tell the truth. Okay, so Jamie, this, this is a really interesting part of this conversation, especially for me as someone who's been watching closely for about the last year and a half or so. I mean, it feels like automakers... And the companies that sell them parts are truly pumping real money into decarbonization and electric vehicles and so forth. But for environmentalists like Andrea and Dan, they're just not buying it yet. You know, the Dan's last point about the Obama-era cafe standards, you know, you covered that closely. I'm curious what your reaction is to his point and this broader concern about, you know, sort of this lack of trust on the, on the part of climate activists toward the industry. Yeah, you know, it was a complicated uh, time in history, uh, not that long ago. Uh, but, you know, what happened 
when the automakers and the Obama administration set the target of 54.5 miles per gallon, you know, cafe miles per gallon, not real world miles per gallon. But when they set that ambitious goal, there were sort of, there were two steps to it. There was an initial ramp up that was considered pretty aggressive. We saw a lot of uh, light weighting. We saw turbocharging and reducing engine sizes and a lot of significant progress in miles per gallon uh, per vehicle, at least within the vehicle classes. Of course, we also saw a lot of shift in the market from cars to crossovers and and SUVs and and all that. So built into it was that there would then be a midterm check-in. And Assuming everything was fine, if the if there was still a good runway to keep improving fuel economy um, and the companies were healthy and so on and so on, then the second half would proceed, which was even more aggressive. And then what happened was the surprising election of Donald Trump. And that midterm check-in was going to be under the next president. The Obama administration and, their, and the EPA accelerated the approval. They basically, you know, rushed through without the midterm check-in, without a, a you know, the, and the check-in, the idea was that, again, re-huddling with the auto industry. Rather than do that, they just said, yep, everything's fine so far. We're going to keep going. And then, of course, you know, so Trump came in and said, you know, well, that wasn't there. They said to, to the new president, that wasn't fair. It was Trump was not a fan of regulations of any sort. And so, um, you know, he put an end to that. It's a little more nuanced than than Dan shares, but it, I can understand some of his uh, skepticism and even cynicism. Jamie, I'm curious about maybe this broader point that Dan and Andre are are talking about. Talk a little bit about the work you think that the auto industry deservedly or maybe not deservedly must do to earn trust from people who are really pushing on these issues. Do you think that they're there is a way for the auto industry to show, look, we are serious about this and uh, you can trust us to you know, actually do the, do the part that we need to do. I, I think it's going to be really tough. Look, I mean, after there's a, <laughs> decades of animosity between <laughs> environmentalists and the auto industry, and occasionally they find a moment of peace, but then they go back to you know, pushing each other. You know, one of the things that we've seen in other industries and in the past with efforts to uh, make manufacturing cleaner, for instance, is that not always the technologies don't always work the way they're intended. Uh, the technologies are supposed to contain emissions within a factory or process them before they're exposed to the atmosphere. They they don't always work the way they're supposed to. So I think there's going to be maybe a, a trust but verify sort of approach. You know, from both sides, certainly from the environmentalists, they there's not a whole lot of trust, but. They are seeing the actions, and as we see the industry continue to move, maybe they'll win more of that trust. We're going to take a lot closer look in the next couple of episodes at how individual automakers and manufacturers are navigating these decisions and their motivations behind them. And next time on Driving to Zero, we pull back the curtain on how General Motors decided to tell the world that it believes in an all-electric future. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And um, I think it was both, uh, I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is just like, but, but we, we don't. And I said, well, I said, that's sort of the problem. I said, if we, we just went out there and said, we believe in a, a vision of a world of zero emissions, sort of as engineers, tell me how do we get to a world of zero emissions if we're still burning fossil fuels? 
And there wasn't an answer to that question. So there was a, it was a little bit of silence after that. Driving to Zero is a podcast from Automotive News, original music and sound design by Sam Bobian. We got additional help from Kellen Walker, Alicia Anderson, and Isabella Warren. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Jamie Butters. We'd really love if you gave us a like, review, and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode of Driving to Zero. Thanks for listening.